This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. This week, behind the scenes and unplugged, the next hour of radio delivers on the Polyoptics mission to take you, the POTUS listeners, inside like never before. First up, a conversation with New York Times photojournalist and White House legend Doug Mills. If you have ever wanted to know how the coverage of presidents happen, Doug Mills will not disappoint. His career from Reagan to Obama and the events of 9-11-2001 straight ahead. And then, Diplomat No More, a candid and honest conversation with former State Department spokesman P.J. Crowley. His insight into national security matters and the internal politics of American government will shock you. But first, I'm joined, as always, by Josh King, co-founder of our website, polyoptics.com. Josh was production chief in the Clinton administration, as I was in the George W. Bush administration. And Josh, it is great to have you here. Great to be with you, Adam. Great to be in the calendar of September 2011. We made it. Where did August go? <laughs> it was a long month, and uh, it seems like everybody went on vacation. But not really, did they? I mean, you know, we started with the Ames straw poll and, and the Obama bus tour, and then uh, President Obama went on vacation, but it wasn't really much of a vacation when you come to think of it. No, we had an earthquake, and we had a hurricane, and we had uh, the, the, the de-evolution of yet another dictator in the Middle East as Libya starts to wrap up. This president had his hands full out there on the vineyard. And you have to think that behind the scenes, and they were careful to point out uh, the number of aides that were with him to do his briefing, his briefing about his upcoming uh, jobs plan and John Brennan to keep him up to date on what was going on in national security. And you heard that there was going to be this big job speech in September. And I guess if you could have scripted it perfectly, it would have come right on the in the one hour before football season debuts on Thursday, a joint session of Congress speech, and none of the behind-the-scenes mechanics of getting there would have ever come up, brewed, come above the headline. No, it, it, they wouldn't have. But yet, uh, here we are with what I would call an unforced error, yet another one, on the part of the White House. Uh, you know, every and I, I would just say also to what you had pointed out, I think Americans get the fact that the president doesn't go on vacation. The presidency and leading this nation goes with him wherever he is. He did take some time away from the White House with his family, well-deserved, yep. was dealing with a lot of things. But then they came back and they just ceremonially shot themselves in the foot and invited themselves over for dinner at the House uh, of Representatives. And they said, hey, <laughs> it doesn't work good for us. We're going to push you off by a day. What do you say about that? And, and, and we won't know, or maybe we'll find out eventually. Did they really want to supersede the Republican debate at the Reagan Presidential Center in Simi Valley, California? Those are the optics, right? Did, I mean, I don't know. Did they want to try and step on Governor Perry's first debut, or was it just a, a simple mistake? Because it, it, whenever you're thinking about theater, you want to have the last word. You want to be the last person on stage. So if you let them argue amongst themselves with not much fodder to go on on Wednesday, then you can have the stage and all 
Hall of Congress in front of you on Thursday night just before the kickoff of the NFL season. It would be so perfect, but they seem to want Wednesday, and I just can't figure it yeah, out. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, the one thing I would point out, though, in this little uh, mini debacle, and it's really just nothing. I mean, it's just yeah. apropos of, uh, you know, the the animosity, and I, I hate to say that, but I think it really is true between this White House and the Speaker, uh, is that it's not just about the Republican candidates, Josh, in their debate. Nancy Reagan, of all people, is sponsoring this, and it's happening at the Reagan uh, Center out there, and I, I just think that to some extent, it was poorly thought through, both in the execution and who they were stepping on and how, and I think they're better than that. Have the mechanics of going up to Capitol Hill to speak before a joint session ever been fodder for public comment before? Not really. This is no, just background never. noise, and it's inside it, the Beltway. It, it, and so it's uh, it, it's um, it speaks to the the poor planning that these are these are the things that you that we as polyopticians manage behind the scenes that we smooth out. Calls are made. Calls are discussions are held to say, would you please send us a letter inviting us to speak before inviting the president to speak before Congress. You receive that letter and then you can make an announcement. You don't say where you're going to be before you actually get that letter in hand. Yeah, there's no playing past uh, uh, this play to the next one in a public way. But Josh, we have a really, and I'm incredibly excited about this show that we have today uh, because we're going to take your, this audience, everybody who's listening to us here on Sirius XM 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States, uh, inside the White House, and we're going to look at uh, almost a full decade of covering a president with one of the most revered and respected photojournalists of our time, Josh. Yeah, I mean, when I got my job of a lifetime as head of production of the White House in uh, 1994, one of the people who really took me under his wing was the wire photographer of the Associated Press, Doug Mills. Uh, probably looked a little older than his actual age because he was prematurely bald, but this is a guy who was a witness to history going all the way back to Reagan, who could... who who really kept a spoke softly but carried a big stick in terms of the images that his pictures created on the front page of the world newspapers and and I really learned a lot from him he, he's been uh, delivering the goods uh, to the American people through the AP and the New York Times for a long time and when I uh, joined the White House as director of production in 2007 um, you know he was someone not only that you needed to know and someone with whom you needed to have a relationship but someone you could turn to for advice and quite frankly uh, when you're working around the White House there's no better uh, delivery of institutional knowledge than working with someone like Doug Mills. But we also have, and I love this, Josh, P.J. Crowley, uh, the no stranger to the POTUS audience, former Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs, who left under quite a bit of a hubbub, but is really one of the smartest guys on national uh, security communications, bar none, and he's going to be here in studio talking to us as well today. That's right. I mean, P.J. is a, a, 
a guy who I had tremendous respect for when I worked with him for a couple of years in the Clinton years, a guy who came off of almost a quarter century of military service uh, in the United States Air Force, served as the national security uh, spokesman for the National Security Agency, uh, and then, as we know, uh, worked for Secretary of State Clinton at the, from the beginning of the Obama administration. I've got some tough questions for, for him, but no tough question ever seems tough when it comes out uh, as an answer from P.J. Crowley, and you'll hear that a little bit later in the show. But Josh, over to Doug Mills, right? So, Adam, as you know, uh, Air Force One carries the president, his staff, the Secret Service military uh, staff as well. But they also have uh, a small group, maybe a dozen or so reporters called The Pool, uh, which has a, a print reporter and a TV crew and photographers of the major wire services and news agencies. And Ten years ago, uh, on September 10th, 2001, uh, a one of the photographers, Doug Mills, accompanied the president to Sarasota, Florida, for what seemed like a pretty routine trip to promote No Child Left Behind and his education policies. And uh, things turned quite different uh, the next morning, and we were so proud to have one of the great uh, political photographers of our time and any time, Doug Mills of the New York Times, to join us. Doug, welcome. To yeah, Polyoptics. welcome to Polyoptics, Doug. Josh, thank you very much, Adam, and thank you very much for having me. So, what happened in those morning hours when you're in the back of a classroom for what must seem to you like yet another setup classroom event? The pool being roped into its its area, and you're looking through the lens and suddenly Andy Card is in that frame. Is that an unusual experience for you? Yeah, I think um, starting from just rolling up to the school that day, I mean, we were in the, I was in the press van and uh, seated behind uh, one of the uh, press secretaries and um, his cell phone rang and he was on the phone and said, oh, a plane, a plane, uh, a small plane or a big plane? And where in New York? And, and you know, I was obviously overhearing him because I was right behind him. And he got off the phone. He said, it sounds like there's been a little plane crash in New York City. So we got out of the vans and we were hustled running into the to the classroom. And uh, there was a little more talk. Uh, a couple more cell phones went off. A um, little more chatter about it. But nobody thought uh, that it was going to be as big as what it was. Um, but we thought possibly it could change the day's news, which was uh, total, you know, totally focused on no, no child left behind. And um, as we got into the classroom, the event started uh, off just like any other classroom presidential event. Uh, the president came in, students were just as quiet and sitting there nicely. And uh, the president came in, sat down, the teacher spoke, introduced him. Uh, the president uh, listened to a story being read. And um, we noticed Andy Card walked into the classroom uh, over to the left. I kind of looked up and I saw him and he, he clearly did not look like Andy Card normally looks, very confident and uh, poised, and he looked uh, a little bit shaken. So when he walked in, I kind of made eye contact with him, and I think a couple of the other reporters did the same, and he gestured with his fingers, number two, the, the gesture two, and I, of course, thought, what, what does two mean? You know, two what? Two minutes we're leaving, or two minutes something's going to change, or we're done in two minutes, or he, you know, so... Sure enough, as uh, I kept my eye on the president and the lens focused on him and uh, watched and, to my surprise, watched Andy Card walk over and whisper into the president's ear. And at the time, I had no idea what he was whispering into his ear. And it was only later that when we were on Air Force One 
I think it was the 14th in New York City when I asked Andy what he said uh, when he reached in the, you know, leaned over to the president's ear. He said, uh, I told the president, uh, Mr. President, a second aircraft has hit the World Trade Center. America's under attack. To this day, it gives me chills hearing that. It, it does to me as well. Uh, you won the Political Photo of the Year award for that picture, Mr. President, We Are Under Attack, from the White House News Photographers Association. And uh, tell our listeners what it's like. You were then an AP uh, wire photographer. You are being ushered quickly out of the Emma Booker Elementary School. You're being shoved into the motorcade. How do you get that picture onto the wire and out to the world? What's What did you actually have to do in those few minutes that you had before you loaded up? Well, um, as soon as we were ushered out of that room and we realized that uh, there was chatter that it was a uh, terrorist attack, I knew right away that whatever Andy Card told the president, it was incredibly important. So I immediately took my disc out of my camera. They ushered us into another room where they said the president's going to make a statement about what is happening. And um, I remember walking into this room, which was cleanly set up with chairs in line, all waiting for the, which was going to be the next event after the classroom where he was going to go out and speak to the school and the, and the students. Uh, went in there, the chairs were perfectly lined up. And when the press corps went through those chairs, it was like, you know, just pushing them out of the way. We were completely, you know, wound up about what was going on. And my first reaction was, all right, I've got to get this picture out. I started transmitting the picture immediately to New York. I remember walking around with my laptop in my hand and a camera in the other hand. And when the president came out to speak, put the laptop down right in front of him, right, you know, as he was speaking, transmitting that picture back to New York. And I think by the time we left the school, I had two pictures of Andy Card speaking to the president um, and whispering into his ear. Again, I had no idea what he was saying, but knew it was important. And then I, I was thinking that New York's going to say, hey, we need pictures because they didn't see the, the, uh, the classroom event because it wasn't carried live. Obviously, the statement was carried live. So they saw that. And a lot of the editors, okay, we need a picture of the president making his statement. So then I started transmitting those pictures. As we were whisked out of the school faster than I think we've ever left any event with the president, rushed to our vans. I think people were left in the vans or left at the school and didn't make it in the motorcade. And we were uh, rushed back out to the plane. And, you know, again, transmitting as we were flying in the plane, the drivers, everybody is really wound up now and, and very excited about the news or what has happened not excited but you know very uh, tense so um, I think by the time we got to the plane uh, we ran into a situation that we I had never encountered before traveling with the president we arrived got out of the cars and normally as Josh knows we go straight up the steps there's an Air Force police officer there who looks at our man looks at the manifest lets us go on to Air Force One checks off our name and up we go this time we were asked to put everything on the ground, including our cameras, our everything out of our pockets, all of our pagers. At the time there were pagers, not Blackberries, so cell phones, pagers were all put on the ground and the dog sniffed them as if they were looking for some sort of bomb. So once that the president went up, we ran on board and um, took off. And we had at first had no idea where we were going. Doug, just hearing you uh, recall the events of that morning um, help, I think, everybody listening to Polyoptics on POTUS, Sirius XM 124, appreciate that 
you know, photographers, especially the caliber of photographer that you are and the job that you do, you are not automatons. You don't just stand by to take pictures. You're one of the most keen political observers. You have seen it almost all, and you know when something is going awry or something is different. Uh, but even as that unfolded in front of you on the morning of 9-11, I imagine it pales in comparison to what you experienced as you followed over the next couple of days and then ultimately to Ground Zero at the World Trade Center. Take us through that. It did. I mean, for us to be whisked away and to see the president with that reaction in the classroom, the, the expression on his face, the expression on Andy Cards as he walked away from the president, his um, quick statement, and then once we got on Air Force One and took off, I mean, normally, as Josh knows, on Air Force One, we were always allowed to watch a movie. You know, you could call up, ask to see a movie. We got on board, and for the first time ever, CNN was live on the television in front of us. It was kind of grainy, and um, but we could see the World Trade Center on fire. And, I mean, it really hit home for us as we, as we taxied off, took off, and... The White House staff came back and we were asking, okay, where are we headed? Where are we going? We don't know where we're going. We're, we're, we don't know. We're just le we're getting up in the air. So off we went. And of course, you know, the Air Force personnel, the White House staff, the Secret Service, everybody's asking, where are we going next? Obviously, the president wanted to go to an Air Force base to address the nation. And at that time, um, the president could not address the nation from Air Force One. That has since changed since 9-11. I just want to put it in some context because if you're in the middle of a Josh King or Adam Belmar production uh, and you're traveling on Air Force One or you're moving from event to event, everything is scheduled. It's down to the minute and there's a protocol and oh. a precise way to do this. And this was anything but that, Josh. I mean, that's right. As as Doug just described, you're flying west to uh, to Barksdale Air Force Base, uh, and you don't know where or why. And Doug, I'm sure you're you and your colleagues uh, on the right side of the aircraft and the starboard side must have wondered what those uh, jet fighters were outside your window. Yes, um, which was a an astonishing view. Uh, I remember uh, being up, and we were probably at forty five or fifty thousand feet and um, wondering where we were going. And all of a sudden, one of the Air Force guys says, hey, we're getting an escort. And we looked out the window, and there they were, the F-16s outside the window of Air Force One, which was a, a sight, you know, just, it's hard to believe, even to this day, to think that there would be an F-16 all surrounding Air Force One, escorting it, and we could see it. I mean, at one point, Josh, the the F-16 pilots were so close into the wings that, that he saluted to us because he could see us <laughs> looking out the window. That's how close they were. And to think that that's, you know, the, the degree of, of security that was going on and around Air Force One is, you know, is remarkable. So in the mid-decade, uh, you hung up your AP credential uh, and moved to the New York Times. And I always thought that you uniquely as a wire photographer sort of w w was looking for a more angles and an opportunity to shoot different things. I mean, you and I worked together uh, uh, rigging up remote-fired cameras from scaffolding above press conferences so <laughs> you could create this, uh, this fisheye look at major events, a, a, an image and an angle that no photographer really had ever created or at least hadn't in any of my recollection. And then you moved to the New York Times and now you've transitioned to, uh, I don't know if this is your fourth or fifth president 
being covered. But what's it like to cover President Obama versus President Bush and President Clinton? Well, yeah, you're, you're right. It, moving from the Associated Press to uh, the New York Times was a, um, you know, a great move for me. I loved my days at the AP, and uh, I've enjoyed my, time, my uh, days at the Times uh, even more. It's given me a chance to step back, get a little more perspective on things, think a little more, and not be under the gun every four or five minutes with every photo op and everything like that to give it a little perspective. Now, as far as covering, you know, I, I started with, uh, believe it or not, Ronald Reagan when Ronald Reagan was president. And uh, were you like twelve years old at that point, Doug? I mean, honestly, but he still yeah. didn't have hair back then. So yeah, I was bald at twenty-two. You know, so I, I was, uh, yeah, I, I didn't have any hair then. But um, I, yeah, I was very young when I started here, and uh, luckily, a lot of the uh, the old timers that were here took me under their wing, gave me a lot of uh, respect, and. Uh, really showed me how the White House is covered and that that was you know invaluable to me and I've been able to look and see and witness the different personalities that have uh, come through the uh, the Oval Office and it's um, you know they're all different they're very different uh, President Obama has uh, the same stage presence as uh, Bill Clinton did and uh, Ronald Reagan um, President Bush um, probably not as much stage presence but uh, clearly uh, knew when photographers were around and uh, enjoyed our company. I think uh, he and his dad, Bush 41, um, both uh, loved photographers and, uh, you know, we uh, we were able to make good pictures of them. And I think, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask, with President Obama, you, you said that he compares to President Clinton and President Reagan, and I think probably through the lens, that's true. But as Doug Mills is now shooting yes, a bit more of uh, video as well as as uh, as still, um, what comes yeah. out of the mouth is not quite as emotive or doesn't have that same inflection as a Clinton did. That's so true. Yeah, Clinton was uh, one of a kind. Um, he he had this, and especially um, he his days with whenever he was with Hillary, whenever he was with Chelsea. Um, you could really tell the I what through the lens there was a family bonding that that was very very keen and very very warm. There were times obviously when there was trouble and it was clearly visible within the photographs during uh, the whole impeachment trial. Um, there were lots of images there that you know his his expressions were he, there was no way for him to hide them. No matter what, President Clinton's emotions were th seen through the lens, and I think. Uh, President Bush had the same thing, but he had a little better way of hiding it. Now, President Obama, he, uh, you know, as many photographers have said, the camera loves this guy. Um, he's got an incredible smile. He's got a, you know, skinny frame. Um, light loves him. Um, you know, just there are people that have said it's hard to make a bad picture of the guy. That's right. But, you know, obviously, given, given the tough times, uh, and the uh, political theater that's going on in Washington these days, you see, I see, and I think other people see more emotion out of him and more of a, in his, in his mannerisms, you know, when a week before he went on that bus trip around the White House, it was like there was a huge cloud around this place. You could tell in his demeanor, his, his shoulders just didn't look the same. He was constantly, you know, battling about the debate and coming into the press room more often than the press secretary was. And we saw him just about every day. And uh, he just didn't look, you know, it looked like it was taking a toll on him. Then we go out on the road for a bus trip, and uh, my gosh, there's people on the streets and cheering, and, you know, he looked like a different man. 
do you ever get frustrated with editors and the photos of yours that they choose? And then beyond that, as you take this singular image of the day and it is chosen and you see it on the cover of the New York Times, do you ever get frustrated that people will read into it or take something away from it that maybe you never thought was there? Or how do you react to your work as it gets socialized? Well, that's a great question, Adam. Um, we, I, it's amazing how many people comment on photos that end up on either the website or the front page. Normally on the front page, some will love them, some will hate them. I mean, it's amazing how during whatever, whatever campaign stop or campaign you're covering, whether you know we can be criticized for making the candidate look good or making the candidate look bad. So, and luckily at the times, um, the freedom that they give me and the editing that they allow me to do, basically, you know, they do not on a, on a daily basis see my whole take. So I, they give me that freedom to where I can, you know, make sure I capture the moment of the day, as you say, and, and however I want to, you know, let the reader see see that moment i'm allowed to do that and from any campaign event or any event here at the white house i may send in anywhere from five to 15 pictures from an event and believe me i'll try and give them every angle i can and uh, every emotion but i also want that peak moment it's like shooting a football game you want the peak action of every event and that's 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 my goal whenever i go into even the most mundane oval office event that's that's my goal is to try and bring something out of there that is as close to the peak moment as i can i mean you think through those peak moments doug and i witnessed it firsthand for years and i still see it coming through the front page of the new york times when uh, President Obama speaks with Prime Minister Netanyahu in the Oval Office. Uh, that tete-a-tete was a unique moment, and you saw the the strain and, and the anger in both men's eyes through your lens. Uh, I think that's probably born from the extra skill you might get when you camp out high on a ski mountain at the Olympics and watch downhill racers. It might it might get augmented when you take a day off and head out to congressional. Uh, golf course to watch Rory McIlroy surge ahead and win the U.S. Open. So you are a wide-ranging photographer who even, I was looking at one picture that you took, um, you're watching uh, Roger Clemens walk into the courthouse uh, for one of his hearings in Texas, and uh, you're shooting with a a still camera and a video camera mounted on top of it. Mm -hmm. And you're a guy who's really seemed to be evolving with the times. And uh, just leave us with some thoughts on where you think photojournalism is going. Oh, Josh, you're very informed. Um, I think photojournalism, from from our standpoint, because of the internet and because of the web, and there's such a demand for for web video, web pictures. Um, I, you know, I I did hook up that uh, made that little device to to put a uh, camera on top of another camera because the top camera can shoot video of the same thing I'm seeing below with the still camera. Um, obviously, you hear the shutter every once in a while, but it allows a reader to to really see what I'm seeing. And sometimes, you know, they can hear me make that moment when they're watching the video. Um, and I think it's important because, you know, everybody's so much more informed about the about news and the web and wanting to see images. And they're so much more educated about photography. And um, and really, there are so many amateurs out there who who love taking pictures and, and really envy our jobs. I mean, believe me, I, I've got the best job in the world. And uh, every, day I, uh, every day I go to work, I, I, I think about that because I'm very lucky. 
Doug Mills, we're really honored to have you on the show uh, to be a part of Polyoptics and discuss uh, this uh, academic uh, understanding of politics and visual communications and to be able to take a journey uh, along with you through what you've done and what you see. We're real pleased to have you on the show, and I hope you'll come back again. I'll come back anytime, Adam. I appreciate your help. And I uh, love listening to you guys, and uh, I'm a big uh, XM fan, so uh, look forward to being back on again. Josh, thanks a million. So P.J. Crowley, who joins Polyoptics now, uh, who was until March the Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs uh, with Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. He left in March, and uh, given that uh, he comes from Brockton, Massachusetts, I was wondering, PJ, now that you're joining us on SiriusXM, whether you were going to pull a marvelous Marvin Hagler and head out to Cape Cod and train for your next fight. But it seems like uh, you picked the fight up pretty fast because your Twitter following has magnified uh, many folds since you left the State Department. Welcome to Polyoptics. Uh, to be to be honest, I'm, I'm glad, very happy to be here, Joshua. With you and with Adam, uh, I was only born in Brockton. I actually never lived there, <laughs> so I, I've got yeah, I've got some pugilism that comes with uh, a birth certificate. Well, at least you are a loyal Red Sox fan, and as we enter the final uh, several weeks of the baseball season, it's good to see uh, our hometown Red Sox with a, at least somewhat of a lead over the Yankees going into the final weeks of the season. Let's hope it's ha- we'll hope it holds until the playoffs. So, PJ, you left the State Department uh, in March. Uh, you might remind our listeners about the circumstances surrounding your departure and tell us what you've been doing since then. Well, it actually was a trip to the hometown, Boston, Massachusetts, uh, where I was asked a very honest question by a MIT researcher, um, why is the United States torturing uh, Bradley Manning, uh, who's accused of being responsible for the leak of the uh, uh, database from what we call the NCD, the National Netcentric Database, uh, to, uh, to WikiLeaks. Um, and my response was that while uh, he stands accused of a serious crime, he's innocent until proven guilty. And I felt that the treatment of Bradley Manning at the time, as I recall, I said something like, uh, was ridiculous, counterproductive, and stupid. Uh, it created a controversy, and uh, and from that controversy, I thought that it was appropriate, uh, having uh, perhaps lost the confidence of, of the uh, leadership at the White House, that it was... Uh, appropriate to resign, which I did. But I, I never changed my view. Uh, and fortunately, about three to four weeks later, the Pentagon evaluated the situation, came to the same conclusion. And Bradley Manning, as he awaits uh, his day in court, uh, sits in a, uh, a prison in, uh, in Kansas, a uh, much more appropriate prison, able to interact with the uh, prison population, has his clothes back at night, is getting medical evaluation and uh, preparing for his trial. Uh, for those who think of, of names like Quantico and Fort Leavenworth, they seem <clears throat> places on the map, places we associate with military activity. But what are the differences between the confinement that he had at Quantico and what he, what Private Manning uh, experiences today in Fort Leavenworth? And I should add, and you were you didn't note that in that statement that you made at MIT, you also said that he should be confined for a very long time. You, it wasn't about whether he should be prosecuted or not, whether he should be confined or not, but the circumstances of his confinement, right? No, sir, absolutely. Um, as I said, I, I think I said that day that he is exactly where he should be, uh, facing a serious crime, and if convicted, uh, he should uh, be in jail for, uh, for quite some time. 
Um, I, I think what, what was lost in this was the fact that, uh, you know, this has done significant damage to the national interest of the United States. Uh, but in the process of his treatment at Quantico, he, he technically was not in solitary confinement, but in fact he was. Um, he was on a, a suicide watch that was not supported by medical evidence, which meant that at night he had his clothes taken away and was forced to sleep uh, naked. Uh, in the process of this, it had created a controversy around the world to the extent that many people felt that he was a far more sympathetic figure. You know, than the crime that he he stands accused of, of uh, of, 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 of propagating. So, um, it, it was because I believe in this prosecution. It's very important. It's very necessary in the uh, in the in the cross section of technology and information. If we're going to protect, you know, secrets that are vitally important to the United States in the future, then we have to send a strong signal to those like myself who were entrusted with. Uh, protecting classified information while uh, pursuing government service. In the conversation uh, in Boston that we're referencing, uh, after you made your comment, somebody asked, are we on the record? And there was that moment where you knew full well what you had said. You knew how you felt. You hadn't espoused these views from the podium at the State Department, but they were heartfelt and they were well-grounded. Um, and as you said, you were asked an honest question. You gave an honest answer. Um, and you said, yeah, we, we are on the record. Did you know at that moment that you had crossed a line uh, being a senior government official, someone upon whom uh, the, the weight of speaking for the, the government of the United States had you'd cross this line and you weren't going to go back um, I, I knew I was on an edge uh, by the same token I thought this was very much a part of my job as the assistant secretary of state and, and in essence the guardian of the conversation that goes on every day between the United States government uh, and foreign populations the uh, United States has had issues around the world with detentions and detention policy what we didn't need was another one, one that was more of a self-inflicted situation. Had this been bubbling up in your mind, though, for, well, for weeks? Well, it actually had been a, a and, and remains today, to some extent, a subject of discussion and disagreement between the State Department and the Defense Department. Another facet of this was that in the light of some of the information that had come out in public, uh, the, United, the United Nations Special Rapporteur for Torture had asked for a private audience with uh, with Bradley Manning to be able to evaluate uh, his detention. That meeting has yet to take place. The Pentagon has yet to uh, to grant uh, access the, to Bradley Manning. The thoughts around this, though, were conversations that were going on at state. Uh, they weren't just in your in your own thought no. This the, the backdrop was that we were trying to get the Pentagon to understand that, notwithstanding that the Quantico, Quantico Brig Commander had the authority to take the steps that he had taken, but there was this broader context and there was this broader impact. And um, I mean, it, it, the Bush administration went through the same aspect is you've got to be more sensitive in this media 24 hour seven environment, you know, that uh, what you say and what you do have much broader impacts than might be intended. We've got to be cautious and be mindful of those as we go forward. PJ, given that uh, you came to work in the Clinton administration, where you and I worked together for a while after, uh, in the midst of a what was a 26-year career in the Air Force, and so you are no, uh, there's no uh, lack of knowledge about how uh, that command structure operates. Um, you 
retired from the Air Force uh, at the end of the Clinton administration, I believe, uh, worked uh, in a very fascinating area that we can get into, uh, given the backdrop of Hurricane Irene with the Insurance Information Institute, and then came to the Center for American Progress. Uh, And then I would think, given your training uh, in in government public affairs came upon one of the what is regarded as one of the great jobs in American public relations, American diplomacy, which is the Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs. So up to that point in March for the t- period of 2009, 2010, up until early 2011, what was it like a- a- and what did you feel early in 2009 when you came with Secretary Clinton to the State Department as if this was going to be a, a great opportunity for you to, to bring your communications to a new level? Well, and, and uh, Josh, there's, there's kind of a thread that goes across many of these uh, activities. Obviously, you know, for us who served in the late Clinton administration, we, we were there at the genesis of this conflict between the United States and the West uh, and Al-Qaeda, you know, suffering the uh, bombings of the East Africa embassies and then the bombing of the coal late uh, in in 2000. Uh, Having then actually been in New York three blocks from the World Trade Center on September 11 and seeing the horrific uh, uh, tragedy that unfolded on that day and then coming to the Center for American Progress and and, uh, evaluating and participating in how Homeland Security as a concept uh, was developing, but also mindful that at, at its heart, while there there is a military dimension to the struggle, it is largely a competition of ideas, uh, uh, and and the the winning will involve convincing hearts and minds to do something more constructive than blow themselves up in the middle of a marketplace or to hijack an airplane and fly it into a, a superstructure. So I, I think I brought that perspective to the State Department in that we we have to have a different kind of conversation, uh, a more thoughtful conversation with the rest of the world, and be very mindful that we might take actions that are very necessary, very important, uh, but uh, uh, what we might think we are communicating is maybe different than what a, you know, someone in Pakistan might be hearing or seeing. As you say this, uh, I mean, we have to appreciate, PJ, that we are just now on the cusp of the 10-year anniversary of 9-11-2001. As I came to the studio to record this segment today, I noticed that Sleepy Washington is coming back to life in much the same way that it did 10 years ago. The kids are back in school. Uh, Congress is about to uh, come back into session. The president uh, has come off of his vacation, and very serious issues are at hand, but the elements of government are not rolling Uh, at full force just yet and so we are waking up and as we remember uh, all of the things that you put into context this decade long or more narrative of this struggle with al-qaeda even a name we didn't know as far back as uh, the 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 clinton administration at least in a popular way um, how do you perceive these issues are being dealt with today by the administration and even by the field of republican candidates uh, in, in, in many ways, uh, it's still not what we hear. Jobs, 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 and the economy prevail. But we're going to see in the next two weeks a lot of references and a lot of recognition that Homeland Security in this fight against those who would see us dead or blow themselves up in a public square remains a, a central fight. 
Uh, Adam, these are great questions. I, I think, you know, even for something that was vital and necessary and important, such as the raid that uh, killed bin Laden, we have to understand that there there is collateral damage. We were struggling uh, in our relationship with Pakistan and public opinion, which was already down in the teens, has basically fallen off the cliff. So uh, even as we do something that is absolutely necessary and in our national interest and the appropriate step for you know, the president to take, we're going to have to work very hard in the coming weeks and months and years uh, to help the people of Pakistan understand that uh, in the short term and the long term, this is a threat that affects both of us, and it actually is a sign of things that we share as opposed to th differences of opinion that we might have. What I worry about as we come, as Washington comes back to life and we resume politics as usual here is, is the, the potential for another attack at some point in time. Um, I mean, we've, we've taken a number of steps over these last 10 years. Many of them were necessary, important, and successful. Some of them were, were well-intentioned, but um, have come at a tremendous cost. You know, think about Iraq as, as you know, one example. But it's always important to understand what, uh, what the bin Ladens and the Al-Qaeda's are trying to do. They're not trying to conquer us. They're not going to occupy the United States. They're trying to get us to overreact. And, and sometimes we have fallen into that trap in the past, and even when we've had you know, attacks that were not successful or attacks that were successfully interacted, sometimes the political reaction here, in my view, has been overheated. We've, we've got to adopt a little bit of that mindset that the Israelis have and the British have. They expect another attack. They're prepared for it. Uh, they'll dust themselves off, learn from it, make some changes. But we have to have this kind of political resilience that I think perhaps we haven't yet demonstrated in the context of fighting terrorism over the long term. You brought up Pakistan, and uh, Josh and I have had this conversation offline. I don't know that we've really focused on it here on, on polyoptics, on POTUS, but uh, P.J. Crowley, you bring an enormous experience uh, to all of these issues, but when we think about Pakistan and the reaction that the American people had with the narrative that was laid out over the attack uh, or raid in Abbottabad, uh, that, that yielded the uh, killing of Osama bin Laden, the salient points for most people were the Pakistanis were harboring him or they at least let him be there and tried not to know about it uh, if they weren't being supported. And then this larger issue, which finally bubbles up in people's minds again, is just regular Americans who live our life, don't focus on geopolitical um deterrence. This is a nuclear state. This is a state who's got uh, India as its sworn enemy, but they're doing a little bit better in their detente. But we give them a ton of money. I mean, a lot of money. And for what? Pakistan has receded so quickly, just like the, uh, the hubbub uh, around Bradley Manning was at a fever pitch. And then, you know, to some extent, you've been vindicated uh, in your statements because the military decided, hey, Crowley's right. We really can't do that. Um, but but these issues need to come back into the fore. Are they going to? Is there a real chance that we're going to understand this in a real way? Um, let me try to unpack some of that. Um, I think that Pakistan is a strategic country, and what happens in Pakistan is going to be vitally important to the security of the United States and, and the security of the West. Uh, if there is, God uh, forbid, another terrorism attack or another terrorism attempt uh, against the United States, it is very possible, if not likely, that there's going to be some sort of link uh, to Pakistan. Uh, certainly the Times Square bomber, uh, a, um, 
uh, and the bomb didn't go off, but he had traveled to Pakistan, received some rudimentary uh, training, and that tells you um, how serious this relationship is. So we're, we're giving them uh, assistance, not to get them to do what we want, but to get them to transform that country and recognize that it is the weak relationship between the Pakistani people and the Pakistani government, the fact that the Pakistani government cannot exercise its own, its level, uh, an appropriate level of sovereignty in these uh, tribal areas where we presume that the remnants of core al-Qaeda you know, sit today. They're under intensive daily pressure uh, by the strategy that uh, has been put together across both administrations. Uh, and uh, this is uh, probably a very significant factor as to why uh, they haven't been successful in the 10 years since. But as Pakistan goes going forward and the nature of the relationship between Pakistan and the United States will tell us a great deal about whether uh, this terrorism threat to the United States uh, continues to rise or, or continues to recede. PJ, earlier in the summer, uh, you wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post headlined, Obama must tell Assad to go. It's not the kind of headline that a State Department briefer would have been able to say. Uh, and indeed, I think Obama has said similar things even as Syria has begun to explode, even behind the curtain of its cutoff of the media. And then just last week, you uh, tweeted uh, with maybe a little a big tongue in cheek, hey, Gaddafi, you've lost control of Libya. What are you going to do next? I'm going to Disney World. Now, a ride at the ICC is better. Um, these are things that you can now say sort of unleashed from the State Department podium. But if we look back at the beginning of the Arab Spring back in February, can you paint us a picture of what it was like at the State Department from the beginnings of understanding that Egypt was beginning to come to un unravel to the moment that Mubarak took off in his helicopter, and how did you work through the various constraints of communicating U.S. position on the, really the beginning of the Arab Spring? Well, and, and we're in the middle of this, I guess we call it now the Arab transition, you know, spring, summer, fall. Uh, and, and this is a remarkable, potentially transformative time in, uh, in that region that is so vitally important to the United States. So uh, the United States has to be, um, has to help get this right. You, you know, I mean, and and what, is, what is remarkable as we come up on the uh, anniversary of 9-11 is it was part of bin Laden's narrative that uh, part of the justification for his strategy was, you know, that the United States was supporting all of these autocrats. Um, and, and what is remarkable about the current period is that al-Qaeda is not a factor. Uh, they're chasing these events and trying to remain relevant, but they're, they're on the sidelines of what is the, you know, these remarkable events in Tunisia, Egypt, Yemen, uh, and now in, in Syria and, and Libya. So you know, when, you, when you think about you know, why we have a foreign policy, why we have a State Department and an international uh, affairs budget, it is in fact to invest in and, and seize these transformative moments. And I, I worry a lot that up on the hill not far from where we're sitting, there's not necessarily this appreciation. People think, well, we're just throwing money in a dark hole. No, we're, we're investing in a different kind of society across the Middle East and North Africa, that it, and this transformation is absolutely 
in the vital interest of the United States. But at Polyoptics, we, we tried to go behind the scenes and talk about process. What I wanted to get a sense from you about, given where you were in February, is I remember going to uh, going to Cairo, and you were probably on that trip, to uh, pay a visit with President Clinton to President Mubarak, and it was full of pomp and circumstance. And to all the public knew leading up to February, we had a pretty good relationship going with the leadership of Egypt, and then it all came apart, but it came apart with a very um, difficult and tactical messaging problem that faced Secretary Clinton and President Obama, and I'm, I'd love you to tell us sort of how you helped to manage that difficult process over those key few weeks in February. Well, sure, and and you've got you've got you know thirty years of of United States policy across multiple administrations, both Democratic and Republican, being turned in its head. You know, not because of anything that we did, but because of a of a fundamental change in the nature of the uh, of relationship between the Egyptian people and and their government, and sorting through these difficult issues. Because when, as you remember, Josh, you know, from our time together, you know, when you when you get to this level, you've got a collision of multi of, of competing national interests. Does the United States favor democracy around the world? Absolutely. Does the United States favor stability in a critical part of the world? Absolutely. Yep. Someone like Hosni Mubarak had been a very constructive player in the context of, of the Middle East. Uh, he had uh, uh, heeded the treaty that had been signed in the late 70s between Israel and Egypt, and that was a, f a cornerstone of stability. And he was a key iconic figure in so many of those opportunities we Absolutely. had in, so th this, in these the were, Lawn. This was a very difficult challenge because you're letting go of something that has meaning and value even though you recognize the aspirations of the Egyptian people, and, and it was a struggle. And 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 obviously, it, for the president, for the secretary, for others, uh, we were inching along here, trying to balance out. The, you know, uh, and, and and even today, we've got a country like Saudi Arabia that thinks that we threw, you know, Mubarak over the side. We did no such thing. It was the Egyptian people that said we want to have a different kind of, of future. And and in that context, obviously, the president with a very, very poignant uh, you know, message uh, backed by the secretary and others said, you know, it's time for Mubarak to go. I want to change the conversation. Uh, I can already imagine many more episodes of Polyoptics here on POTUS, uh, Channel 124, with you, PJ Crowley, because uh, you're so fascinating to talk to. But what's going on in the news today, the things that get me excited following? Number one, the former vice president of the United States, Dick Cheney, has uh, put a book out, and God bless, you're not behind the podium, so we can really ask you these questions. There's one thing that's come up there, uh, and it and it comes down to this: the Secretary of State at the time, Colin Powell, knew full well that Richard Armitage, his deputy, um, was the person who leaked uh, on on the Valerie Plame issue, and uh, here you have a Secretary of State who had every opportunity to talk to the president didn't share this information. We know the story that happened as a result and the uh, the narrative of investigation and ultimately having a journalist jailed for so long. I just want to get your gut reaction to this book. Have you seen it? Are you reading the details of it on Drudge and other places? Do you want to know more? And are you glad that no one's asking you about this in an official capacity? Uh, I mean, that was the nice thing about being at the State Department and not being at the White House. You could, you, you, you were on to real substance and leave the, oh, poli the politics. Oh, the politics was, some, so you were above it, PJ. To somebody, 
yeah, I mean, no, but but at State Department, the politics is really about what's happening in the Ivory Coast or what's happening yeah. in Egypt. Uh, I mean, I mean, th- those are those are significant politics too. I mean, seldom did politics. So, so. come into the mud with me yeah. for a second. Come on. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, Adam, I should be interviewing you on these subjects, but uh, no, you you may be right in that regard. Yeah. But I mean, look, the the um, I mean, th- this this was a uh, as experienced a national security team. As uh, as occupied, um, you know that uh, small piece of territory called uh, you know the, the White House, and yet I, I I think as we step back from it, many of the tough decisions that the Bush administration had to make uh, were not really well vetted across the entire government. Uh, it always seemed like someone like the Vice President had a little bit of a thumb on the scale, as I think he himself has described or others have described of him. You know, during the policy uh, deliberations, he'd get two or three bites of the apple, and 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 it perhaps you know skewed uh, issues in a way that uh, may have been understandable at the time. Certainly, were well intentioned, uh, but but when you you step back and go, how in the heck did we get to this circumstance? Whether it's the uh, you know not recognizing that the intelligence was not definitive on weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, it, it's because there really wasn't the kind of of uh, you know national security process that uh, that perhaps we've seen and and probably and, and to be to be perfectly nonpartisan about this you know the best national security process uh, I've ever seen was during the first Bush administration designed the system designed by Brent Scowcroft that's the system that that every administration since has followed uh, but the Bush administration between uh, in my view. The vice president and the secretary of defense—they kind of undercut the national security advisor, and some of these decisions, well intentioned as they were, yeah, you know, were just not simply vetted as they should be. Well, it seems to me that uh, the word politics just gets the word internal put in front of it, and this is the struggle between uh, the seats of power in the United States, be it the uh, Capitol Hill, the White House, State Department, and the Department of Defense, and uh, this internal struggle. But I want to ask you. Also, because Josh and I are really curious about your take on this, the President of the United States is going to speak before a joint session of Congress um, next week. He's He's got a jobs plan, he says. And if you're advising the President or thinking about being out there with another speech, you, you ultimately turn to someone like Josh King uh, inside the White House. Josh, is this the right place for the President to go to make this speech? And PJ, you know, what, what, how do you respond to Josh as you all are strategizing about, you know, bringing this kind of uh, communications forward, Josh? I think you make a speech to a joint session of Congress under extraordinary circumstances. We remember that President Clinton in 1993 gave a, an off an off-cycle uh, speech to a joint session, off-cycle meaning not his State of the Union, about his health care plan. President Bush talked to a joint session uh, after 9-11. Uh, but, you know, PJ on August 6th tweeted, we have a major league political system and a minor league Congress full of unyielding ideologues. We, the people, elected each one of them. So I think about my venue and I think about some of the catcalls he might get and I wonder, is this really the best venue for it or should he just go back to the Oval Office and give that Oval Office address that he hasn't yet given in such a long time, PJ? Well, you know, I'm, I'm sitting with two great political minds here. So I'm just a national security policy guy. But I, I would say I understand the logic behind going up to the Hill and then hoping that the comparison between a serious address and probably a a dubious reaction or a mixed reaction will will uh, will will uh, strengthen the president's hand in this. 
But I, I, I'm just curious because the White House just gave the speaker a chance to, you know, they gave him a hammer and the speaker used it. Oh, yeah. No, and, this was and, such and a debacle a, in yeah, terms of I, the I, rookie mistake that just led to the president getting basically slapped yeah, in the face and said, I'm going to pick another day. It, it, yeah. It's the president that normally says, I'm coming up on this day and I'm going to speak. Uh, you know, I, I just, I, I just am, am spellbound by the lack of staff work that, yeah. that uh, ended up uh, with the president retreating. Josh, uh, PJ brings up a good point and uh, one that uh, we will be talking about uh, as we go forward. But a fascinating conversation with you, PJ Crowley, uh, former Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs, uh, somebody who is now giving back uh, as a professor in a number of realms, uh, and somebody uh, with whom we enjoy a good friendship, and we're very glad to have you here on POTUS. Pleasure. A little less conversation, a little more action, please. All this aggravation and satisfaction in me. Well, Adam, that was a great conversation with P.J. Crowley following a great conversation with Doug Mills. You know, we, we, we try every week to have the perspective of people who, who make the news from podiums and pulpits and events in Washington and people who cover the news, and we had a wonderful mix today. This was a fantastic show, Josh, and I want to urge everybody who's listening to us here, uh, Polyoptics on POTUS, Sirius XM 124, to be with us next week for a very special show, uh, the 10th anniversary of 9-11-2001, as we look forward uh, to what comes in the next decade and look back at everything that's transpired and what the communication around this anniversary will be. You can always find us on Facebook uh, at Polyoptics and of course at polyoptics.com. Uh, we appreciate everything that comes from our audience. We love hearing from you, so please don't be a stranger. Josh, until next time, it was great to be with you today. Great to be with you, Adam. Have a great week.